Thank you. Good morning. Well, we are coming to the end of Acts. We're in chapter 27 this morning as we uh, consider, continue our series on uh, becoming the church, stories of the first Jesus people. I wish there was a soundtrack to go with uh, chapter 27. I mean, some of the films that stick out in our, in our minds are accompanied by equally significant and memorable soundtracks. As I read this, it may help you to think of Jaws. <laughs> da da da, -da. <laughs> I'm not a singer. Let's read it together. I'm in uh, the New International Version, chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship at Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Here's a picture of their travels. And this Adramidium ship is heading home. Adramidium is up here. And they usually sail close to land because, and I'm not a sailor, and I know we have sailors among us, but based on my reading, I'm going to venture to say a few things that are probably uh, stepping into their areas of expertise. But these ships tended to have a mainmast, and they had no keel. The rudders were more like long oars, not a fixed kind of rudder. So from what I understand, they really remained, especially the smaller ships, the smaller ships such as this one, they stay close to land, and yet they're always in jeopardy because if winds change, then sometimes they can be actually be smacked into the rocks, and that can break them up and destroy them as well. But they don't generally venture out into the greater sea. Those have to be bigger ships, but yet they too are in many ways victims of the wind, favorable or otherwise. So I wanted to give you a grasp of that. We're going to look at, to this uh, in just a moment again. The next day, verse 3, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they mo might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee, think shelter, of Cyprus, shelter because the winds, shelter because uh, the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia, and there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We know that at that time, under Claudius, the whole shipping industry um, 
that is the the Roman shipping industry, as I call it, was enhanced because of the need for grain to feed the people of Rome. They had some, a fleet of some 42 ships. These were large ships. At that time, there were no ships dedicated to passengers. Ships were for moving things, cargo, grain, provisions. And these large e Egyptian ships traveled across the open sea on a regular basis two, two times, preferably a year, if they could fit them in. And uh, they carried grain to Rome, which was very important because if the emperor didn't keep his people fed, it was to his own jeopardy that he didn't. And uh, if anything ever happened, by the way, to the Nile and its flooding season, that affected grains as well. So the fact that they get on an Egyptian or Alexandrian, which is Egyptian, Alexandrian grain ship is uh, telling, and they'll catch another one later. Let's go on to verse 7. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee, Think shelter of Crete. Opposite, Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. This would be Yom Kippur. That is the Day of Atonement, the 10th of Tishri in the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar. That period of time could shift just like our Easter shifts from year to year, sometimes March, sometimes April. At this time, this, it is believed, would be late September or early October at this point in time. And, and in, our, in this year, we think it's probably early October, the sea would be shut for winter from the middle of November all the way to the middle of March. They only had two seasons. They only thought in terms of winter and summer. This is early winter, <laughs> our fall or autumn. But it's becoming dangerous to venture on the open sea or be on the sea at all in that window of time that they're getting within. So verse 10 Men, this is Paul's warning, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. He includes himself. But the centurion, that is Julius who treated him so favorably, the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, and who is Paul to these people? He followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And ships want to get that grain there for the profit. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, fair havens, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and north. And here's a little picture 
uh, a, a close-up, the underside of Crete. Um, this is Fair Havens, and what they want to do, there's about 36 miles. They want to get to the, one of these two. It's either this, which is also referred to as Phoenix, or here, Phoenica. That's all they have to do. They catch a southern wind, and they want to make their way to there. Okay? And so that's what they try to do. But before long, a wind of hurricane force, verse 14, called the Northeaster swept down from the island, from Mount Ida that you can see up there, 8,000 footer, from Mount Ida. And uh, it says they, they couldn't, they got caught by the storm and could not head into it, into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 16, and we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, which you can see there, or Clauda, and we were hardly able to make the lifeboat. This would be a skiff that they dragged behind it, and they now, now needed to secure it in this wild weather, this typhoonish weather. And so it says that they hoisted it, verse 17, aboard. They passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they had this system. Ships carried these extra cables and they wrapped them around the hull of the ship and they pulled them tight to keep it together. Usually one main mast, and I'm told that under these kinds of stresses, the tension of that one mast could actually start to cause the hull to start breaking apart, pulling apart, and admitting water. So they strap it or frap it in order to hold it together. And then there are other ideas as to what Luke means here, but the way it's translated in the NIV is they start dragging some things to keep them from drifting into the north. I won't try to go back, but if they keep moving as rapidly as they are, they're afraid that they're going to run into the, the, the sandbars of Sirtis, which is North Africa, Libya area. And so, and from what we know, it was a very scary proposition. Many sailors, if they survived, had stories to tell about the sandbars of Sirtis, and that's a scary proposition, and they're sailing in this crazy storm. So, to continue... Um, Verse 18, we, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is a low point and it couldn't get any lower. They don't know where they are. They're at the mercy of the storm. They don't even see the sun or the stars. They have no way of determining their location. They have no way of determining where they're going or how to get there. And they, they despair of life itself. And it's really interesting because when it starts out, it's we, which is whom? It's Paul, Aristarchus. 
and some think Aristarchus uh, booked his passage as Paul's slave in order to accompany Paul because he wanted to continue with Paul. Aristarchus shows up in Paul's letters earlier in Acts 2 when Paul moved through Thessalonica. And Luke, who is authoring this, who's on that ship, who's experiencing this. We is a small, small little group of Jesus people in this larger context. And so now it's been, although it's been we and they, we and they, even though the we is probably helping the they, now it's, now it's this we is all of us. Every one on the ship. And we know from this passage it's 267 people. 267. This is a pretty large ship. Josephus, in his antiquities, who was basically a younger contemporary of Paul and writes so much about Jewish history, Josephus booked a passage on an Egyptian grain ship, an Alexandrian one making its way to Rome, and that ship of 600 broke up in the Adria, which is where Paul and his compatriots are. And so it is, this is the very low point in verse 20. And then we read 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because now one of you will be lost. No, not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God who, whose I am or to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God had has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. God has granted you. This is really specific language. It tells us Paul had been praying for all on board. And God has granted his intercessory prayer. He has been praying on behalf of all. God has granted, that's the impact and importance of that word granted. He has granted Paul all lives on board who sail with him. And Paul, will see, takes that very, very seriously. He firmly believes what God has told him through this angel, a messenger, and the message he's delivered. And it changes everything. This is the turning point in this voyage. And in fact, although we, because of our worldview, our faith perspective, and we travel with Paul, we know God is not somehow aloof and disinterested from what's going on. And yet here, in verse 23 and 24 is the explicit expression of God's role and God's interest in what's going on. And it changes everything for Paul and for the ship. 
Nevertheless, he says, he says in verse 25, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. <laughs> so we are going to crash, but everybody is going to survive. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Think Paul took God's message very seriously? So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Wow. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on the board. On, the, on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they let them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They, were ho they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. In this way... Everyone reached land in safety. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. And as he was putting it on the fire, letting all this bundle of sticks tumble onto the fire, he didn't realize there was a a viper in those sticks, and as it fell upon the fire, it was driven out by the heat, fastened itself on Paul's hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging out 
off of his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. So the people expected him to, dwell, to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time, these people were descendants of the Phoenicians. They spoke a, a Punic dialect. They didn't speak Greek. Luke even calls them barbarians, meaning they're ignorant of Greek. So their communication is not the clearest here. But they're, they see what's happened and. With such voyages, just like uh, Jonah, <laughs> they threw him overboard because they thought he was the cause of the sea. Well, the sea hadn't gotten Paul, but when the snake bites him, they think he's a murderer. And they watch him. They're just waiting for him to bloat or to suddenly fall over and die. But when he doesn't, they change their opinion. He's not a murderer. He's a god. These are obviously people who are not reputable theologians. So they changed their minds and said he was a god. Well, this gets him obviously an audience with, at a nearby estate with, which belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home for three days, entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. This is the climax. We're getting right to the finish of Paul's, I mean, Luke's two-volume work. Luke and Acts. It begins with the coming of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the birth of his church. And they will go to the farthest reaches of the earth carrying the message he has risen. And we get a sense of that through this voyage. Now there is, I mean, you have to understand where I'm coming from. I'm thinking, why so much about this voyage? It is an incredible adventure, and it is incredibly conveyed with phenomenal detail. Entire books have been written just on this chapter, and it's a jewel of history in terms that it gives us this eyewitness account of an ancient dire... I mean, this is better than the Titanic or at least that 80s version. And there's no sappy love scene. But, I mean, look, Paul 
just from chapters 9 through 28, Paul has been, we calculate, on 11 or 12 voyages in his travels. In fact, remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, he talks about some of the things that he suffered as an apostle. And he mentions three shipwrecks in a night and a day in the water. And some of those voyages, Luke deals with very deftly in just a few details. Nothing like this. And why? I mean, is it, is it just because it happened? I, I, yeah, but every historian chooses what's meaningful. What's meaningful here? I mean, we're coming to the end. We're picking up pace. We're almost to Rome. We have a sense that the gospel is going forth. We've been traveling with Paul. We're a part of the suspense and the grandeur and glory of getting to Rome. It says, we, that is the way we got to Rome. And what's the importance? What's the meaning? The thing with the snake, the... And I'm not alone in this. There are many who don't really, I mean, there are some really smart people that have different ideas about what Luke's meaning is. I'm going to tell you what I think the meaning is because I think what we see here is what Luke witnessed, right? And who is the focus of what he has witnessed? Paul. Four times Paul intervenes in this voyage before they finally land on Malta. Four times, and those four times are quite significant. And they're all driven by God, by Paul's faith in God. Paul is not aloof from what is happening around him because of his faith in God, because of his worldview, because of his conviction, because of the fact that he is grateful. He does give thanks to God. It changes everything for him. And I see God's blessings, not just in Paul's life, but in the lives of all those around him because of Paul's Faith in God, and it is through his faith in God that God brings his blessings to others. You might say his blessings upon the righteous and unrighteous alike. And what we see here is something pretty striking, I think, and that in these interventions, as I call them, Paul becomes a powerful, in fact, life-saving source of, of blessing that brings them all safely to the island. And then we see him as a source of blessing 
to the people on the island. And when you think of it, he saves the people on the ship. And he saves many of the people, not only the chief official's father. In other words, the greatest to the least. Paul becomes a significant source of blessing to the people on this island. And I'll tell you why else I think this is significant. Because not once do we read, I mean, Julius doesn't say anything to Paul or speak to us. There's no record of Julius coming back and saying, Paul, tell me more about your God. There's nothing about Publius, the chief Roman official on Malta, whose father has been healed by Paul. There's no record of him saying, how did you do that? Tell me about this power. There's no reference to any conversion. There's no reference to anyone responding to the gospel. I think it puts focus, by the way, one can only, you know, surmise or, or just venture a guess as to why that is. We have no way of knowing, but it is Luke's nature to report things like that. So if he didn't report it, I don't think it happened. And that, that impressed me because I see Paul... Save the ship. I mean, to put it bluntly, he saves the ship because, because of his faith in God. And he, he is the source of saving people on that island. He brings these societies, a, a society of its own on a ship, in the midst of a dark sea, in the middle of nowhere, a society unto itself, a pagan and hostile society, a society that is full of superstition and quick shifts in belief. And in the midst, there is Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. There are Jesus people in the midst of this alien and foreign society. And they see this world in this situation with a perspective that is unique and different and in a way novel. It's coming into their world because it is a perspective of not only faith in the God of the Jews, but faith in the God who sent Jesus, who died on the cross and raised us from the dead, and it changes Paul's perspective entirely. In verse 10, we see his worldview. 9 and 10. I already mentioned that real quickly, but it's interesting to me. And this is, I, I really relate to this in verse 9 and 10. It's important to me, maybe not to you. But I see Paul having a worldview, and I think he represents all of us. In fact, Paul has no special revelation. He doesn't feel he's exempt from whatever happens. It's not like he says, yeah, sail on, man. You may lose your lives, but I've got this promise from God that I'm going to get to Rome. He doesn't look at it that way at all. In fact, because he knows, and we know this from chapter 19, we talked about it in chapter 20 and chapter 21, 23, 25, 26, but there is no bona fide absolute promise from God that Paul is going to get to Rome. It's, he makes it pretty strong. In fact, at one point, you know, Jesus himself appeared to Paul when he was just recently in custody. I think it was 23. 
23.11? Yeah, 23.11. And the Lord says to him, you've witnessed to me here, but you've got a witness for me in Rome. But I think it's telling that Paul, because he wants to fulfill the Lord's will, he doesn't think it's wise to go on. I mean, he's a savvy guy. He's learned it. He has the perspective, not only of the Lord, but a sound experience on the sea and in travel. And he says, you know what? I know the Lord wants me to get to Rome. So why gamble with my life and everybody else's? We need to stay here. That's just as valid a sense of it than to read into it that he has some special inside knowledge that God's going to get him there. And therefore, he wants to hold back. He has a worldview in which God is real. It's not compartmentalized. And I really think we all have to have that kind of worldview. It's a faith perspective. You know, I've told you that quick, I'll tell it real quick, but after I first became a Christian, I really thought faith had to, I mean, now that I think about it, it's so silly that I thought that, but I was driving home And uh, I was coming up on a stoplight, and I thought, you know, if I have enough faith in God, that light will turn green. Come on, haven't you ever? Like, Like my faith is a power unto myself, you know, a superpower. And, and I chickened out. And then I kind of beat myself up. But it, it really sent me on a quest. What is faith? How does that work? Well, you... You, faith is our response to God. It's our response to Him through His Word or an angel, as we see in verse 22 and 23 when Paul refers back at this very low point to the message that God has sent him. And out of that message, it changes everything for him. I mean, even there, he refers to the fact, he says, look, I ought to be a credible witness. He pulls, and I told you so, which I don't think is the best use of charm. But, you know, it's Paul who did not list tact among the uh, fruit of the Spirit. But I think he wants to underscore the fact that I'm a credible witness. Some of you remember I warned you. Now I want to tell you something. And it comes from the God to whom I belong, whom I serve with spiritual devotion. And he says, not one of us is going to die. That's the message. But we've got to stick together. You notice it said, sail with Paul. I think that's why Paul not only intervenes in verse, he intervened in 10, now he intervenes in 21, 2, and 3, Then he intervenes in verse 30. You know what was happening in verse 30? That's when some of the sailors said, you know, this baby could, our experience, we know what happens when this gets close to land. This whole thing could break up. Let's take that skiff and save ourselves. And Paul goes immediately to Julius. Now, their relationship has been a little questionable. In the first place, Julius shows Paul tremendous kindness. Paul in Julius's president presence, and maybe through him, he says, I don't think we should sail. Julius, like probably any of us, leans on the experts, the owner and the captain, and they go ahead. They even got a little bit of a, of a 
a wind at their backs. But in the end, they end up in that typhoon. And so now Paul, he says, look, I told you so, but God has now spoken to me. Now Paul puts his faith in what God has definitively said. Now I think there's, there's relevance for us because in our walk with Christ, some of us have that same assurance through his word. His clear, clear, plain, direct word. And Paul takes that to heart. And it is out of that that he starts to encourage them. He says, be of good cheer twice. You notice that in verse 21 and 25. Be of good cheer or take heart. Be of courage. Be of good cheer. In other words, buck up and cheer up, guys. I've gotten word from the Lord. Well, they're slow to get, you know, excited themselves. But Paul keeps on. And at one point, out of this this conviction, he goes to Julius and he says, "Don't don't let those guys leave the ship. We're all in this together. Or we're all lost. And this time, Julius listens to him immediately. In other words, the morale of this ship is being influenced by Paul. As Paul, through his worldview and through his conviction, is recognizing what God is doing and it is proving to be a blessing to the people on this ship. And then in verses 23 and following, or I'm sorry, 33, he says, uh, he goes and he offers thanks. He expresses gratitude. He says, you've got to eat. You haven't been eating. And it's out of that that we will gather the strength to survive this thing. That's his confidence at work. That's his encouragement, his gratitude. Changing the whole attitude of the ship, if you will. And, of course, they do get to land. What I'm seeing here in all of this is a profound picture of how faith are reflected in our worldview. In other words, we're not a people that just see this as a closed system of cause and effect, a meaningless world. But we see it as a created world by our God, who through Jesus demonstrates to us that he has a particular love for each of us. His will for us is good, and it's meant to make a difference in the way we see the world, confront the world, live in the world, not just the way we die, but the difference we make in these different situations. And in the midst, we're like a little leaven, a little... uh, What? Yeast, thank you. That's why I have Shelly there. My (laughs) little yeast, I couldn't think of that word. Little yeast leavens the whole loaf. And these Jesus people are a source, Paul symbolically as it were, of God's impact on this crew. They are a source of salvation to the crew to everyone on that boat, and also to that island. Yes, it's a, it's a worldly salvation, if you will, but it could have led 
to something more. And here's the powerful thing. I think this is really important. We, just like they, do not hold or withhold by pre-calculating or deciding who should be a recipient of God's blessing. It is given so graciously. They, I mean, it doesn't matter if you have the credentials. God in me makes a difference in this world. God in me makes a difference in the way I treat people, the way I view and value them. That's what I'm seeing here. And I think that is significant as we inch toward the end of this great two-work, two-volume work of Luke because here at the end, Paul's going into totally foreign areas, the ship, Malta, Rome. Now, there will be Christians already waiting for him to greet him. But I think the powerful thing is that in this lengthy journey in which we're drawn into the circumstances, we see God's grace distributed generously, not checked by membership in advance. And I love the beauty of, are there any conversions not mentioned in the journey, the voyage not mentioned in the three months? Probably because there weren't any. But isn't that the nature of representing a God who saves? A saving God, that's whom we serve. Saving here, saving there, saving because, well, I love that line this morning. The cross matters because of the resurrection. We bear that cross because Christ lives. And that changes everything. We stand with me. I'm going to close in prayer. This morning, if God has touched you in some way, your faith makes a difference. You may not see yourself that way. I know how I see myself. I think, man, I'm no Paul. You know? Every other believer just, <laughs> I look up to. I think you understand that. Because we are all sensitive and aware of our self-absorption, our human nature, our selfishness. And we know that we could trust God more. But what I want to underscore is God is using your faith, your worldview, your conviction, your gratitude, your worship in ways that you may not always appreciate, but I think you should be self-conscious, deliberate, purposeful, and realize God is using that mustard seed in your life of your relationship with God in ways that make a difference in this world and in the people that are in this world with you. If I, as I pray, if after we close, you'd like to come and pray specifically for for someone you're interceding for, it makes a difference, as we saw. Or praying for yourself in some way, and you'd like to pray with me, one of the elders or wives, pastoral staff, we invite you to come. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who works so faithfully, and sometimes in ways we don't even see, so purposefully to care for us. Thank you, Father, for loving us so greatly. Fill us with your joy that comes from faith, our worldview, our
conviction and gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.